The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 19, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 6 this evening. The word of the Lord. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. We'll be reading through verse 15 this evening, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of our God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here in Titus, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. <clears throat> the grace which forgives is also the grace which transforms. This is a very important truth for us to keep in mind. The grace which forgives is also the grace which transforms. Paul begins this chapter by commanding Titus like this, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, 
if you were listening to this letter as it was first read in Crete, you might have been thinking to yourself, the Apostle Paul's never been to Crete, has he? I mean, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, reverent and pure, those are not exactly the type of terms that come to mind when you think about the Cretans. I mean, shouldn't the Apostle Paul have taken a more realistic approach to Christian ministry among the people of Crete? Why not focus on the gospel instead of putting so much emphasis on how the people behave? All that emphasis on purity, reverence, and self-control might fly when talking to committed Jews about the Christian faith. But in Crete, isn't this going to get in the way of people accepting Jesus as their Savior? Shouldn't Titus adopt a more contextual approach to ministry there in Crete? One that accepts that the Cretans have a culturally entrenched value system that is radically at odds with the biblical morality of the Old Testament. Now, of course, I'm not simply speaking about Crete. I'm also speaking about modern America. A contemporary American culture is not actually characterized by celebrating those people who are sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, reverent, and pure. And critically, we are facing the very same questions I asked about Crete, not only in our own day in the world, but in our own day, inside the church. Many voices are being raised today inside the church, suggesting that we need to take a more contextualized approach to ministry in modern America. Specifically, the idea is that if we talk about the need for sexual purity and don't accommodate both people living together before they get married and homosexuality, we will never reach the younger generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, teaching the very things that Paul is commanding Titus to preach and to teach in Crete is increasingly being labeled moralistic preaching rather than gospel preaching, as though those were two radically separate things. So what are we to make of all this? Well, first, we ought to note that the Apostle Paul knew exactly what Crete was like. Uh, back in chapter 1, Paul write, wrote this. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then he added this. This testimony is true. By the way, I do think a bit about poor Titus. I mean, how would you like that as a job description? I'm sending you to Crete, where the Cretans are, always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, and your task is to preach the gospel so that they become like Jesus Christ. That was no small task. Yes, Paul fully understood the culture of ancient Crete, and he would be entirely unsurprised that other cultures around the world and throughout history would sometimes celebrate sin as though sin were a virtue, just as is taking place in modern North America. 
but he would undoubtedly be appalled at just how much worldliness has crept into the American church. Second, rather than seeing moral transformation as a separate category from the gospel, we ought to see that for Paul, such a way of life is a gospel issue. For the grace which forgives is also the grace that transforms. Now, as Reformed Christians who are gathering for evening worship, uh, I trust that each and every one of you holds to the biblical doctrine of predestination. I, I really think that's true. Well, what is the biblical doctrine of predestination? Uh, the Bible repeatedly and clearly teaches the fact that God has a plan, and he's working that plan. And part of that plan is to save people whom he chooses in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's the doctrine of election. And then he determines the destination you're going to arrive at in advance. That's predestination. But here's my question for you this evening. What is that destination? What is the destination that the Lord has predestined his people to? Don't rush too much on that one. Uh, you might be tempted to say, well, it's pretty obvious. He's predestined us to heaven. Or perhaps to the new heavens and the new earth, because heaven is simply an intermediate state until Christ comes again and brings his people to himself. Well, I do want to grant that that, in one sense, is entirely correct. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ right now, from before the foundation of the earth, God has determined that you will live in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's correct. But it is not primarily the way the Bible itself talks about the doctrine of predestination. Consider perhaps the most famous passage in the entire Bible about predestination, which is found in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, picking up in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Beloved, do you see that the biblical doctrine of predestination does not focus on a physical location where you're going to go. It focuses on you being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It is about the transformation of your character. It is about your moral transformation so that you will reflect God's image into the world. That is what God has predestined us to be. He predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. So can you see how wrong it is to discard the conformity into the likeness of Christ as though it were simply some sort of human moralism? It is in fact God's intent in redeeming us that we would be like Jesus. And here's the thing. God does not wait to begin this transformation until after you die. From the moment you were born again, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life bringing about progressive sanctification. Not simply so that you get a little bit better and a little bit better, but so that more and more throughout your life you look like your old elder brother Jesus, 
so that you are increasingly reflecting God's perfect character into the world. See, Paul fully understand the culture of ancient Crete, but he also understood the power of the gospel. And therefore, he charged Titus with confidence that what Titus could not possibly do, Almighty God would do as Titus preached God's word and taught it to God's people. Look down to verse 14 with me. Verse 14. Here Paul is explicitly telling us what Jesus came to do. Paul writes, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, instead of treating turning from lawlessness, seeking purity, and being zealous for good works as secondary issues, the Apostle Paul is telling us that they are an integral part of why Jesus came and why Jesus gave his life for you. To all those who want to water down the Bible's moral vision to accommodate the surrounding culture, Paul is saying, don't lower your vision, lift your eyes. Look to the living God who is at work in you, both to will and to do. Remember that Almighty God is already at work. Now, if we were the ones who were building Christ's church, we would have no choice at all except to accommodate the surrounding culture. But what the Bible tells us is that it's Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted Christ, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth who has been given... It is that Christ who is building his church. And therefore, we ought to joyfully do it his way. In fact, I suspect that's a bit of the nub of the matter. Um, The reason why people get off track, while we're tempted to get off track, and to imagine we need to accommodate the culture in order to gain a hearing for the gospel, is because we started to think that we, at least in part, are responsible for building Christ's church. And the degree that we think like that, we need to ask the Lord to turn our hearts back, to turn our minds back to him and his plan. That rather than seeking to do his work in our wisdom and in our power, we would once again begin to do his work in his wisdom and in his power. How can we look at Crete or Boston or North Andover and call God's people to live lives that are so radically different from that which is not only accepted but is celebrated in our day? Beloved, we cannot do this, but Jesus can. Christ has come. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, and he has already fought, and he has already won the decisive battle against Satan, sin, and death, on behalf of his people. As our Kent Hughes puts it, grace rightly perceived compels holiness. Now, that's not a logic that makes sense to the world. In the world's eyes, in the popular mind, those who are full of grace are supposed to say, that's okay, all right, no big deal, fine, never mind, and go ahead. 
That's the way the popular mind in our day sees grace. But for the apostle, grace means we say no. What kind of grace is that? The apostle tells us by disclosing the power of Christ's rescue, the nature of his requirements, and the character of his redeemed. And so we will be looking at this evening's passage under five headings. First, God's grace comes to us in Jesus Christ. Second, God's grace teaches us to say no. Third, God's grace teaches us to say yes. Fourth, God's grace teaches us to wait in hope. And fifth, God's grace makes us his own treasured possession. So first, God's grace comes to us in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11 with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace is not an abstract principle, nor is it a philosophy of life. Uh, Biblical grace is so intertwined with Jesus Christ that Paul actually can just interchange those terms. Where we might have expected Paul to write, Christ has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He writes instead, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Such grace is inseparable from Christ himself. We receive both together, and we always receive both together if we are people of faith. Think of the way the Apostle John begins his first epistle about the incarnate nature of the life that we receive from God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The forgiving grace which is also the transforming grace, comes to us entirely in the person of Jesus Christ. And this grace teaches us to say no. In our marketing culture, actually our culture is just permeated with marketing. It's everywhere. You can't even go into a restroom anymore, and they're, they're marketing to you in the restroom. But you know what they're primarily marketing? Anything you want. But they're not telling you to say no to your own desires. Nevertheless, saying no is a necessary aspect of being truly productive in anything. If you want to be a great athlete, you have to say no to Twinkies and late night parties. If you want to have a great marriage as a man, you must commit to one woman and say no to all other women. If you want to be a great entrepreneur, you must say no to dozens of habits so that you have the time and the energy to focus on your passion of getting your business off the ground, and so on. 
To be truly productive at anything means you have to say no to many, many things. And therefore, it shouldn't surprise us, given the great calling that the Lord has placed upon our lives, that following Jesus and seeking to please our Father in heaven of necessity is going to require us to say no to many temptations in this life. As Paul tells us in verses 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In morning worship, we've been looking at or listening to John the Baptist calling the people of his own day to get serious about God, to repent, right, be turned back to God because the kingdom of God is at hand. Beloved, Jesus was coming to them. How much more should we be zealous for this when we live on this side of the cross and the empty tomb and we are waiting not for Christ's first coming but for his second coming? Christ has come and the coming of Christ teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Uh, Will that be easy since God is at work in you, both to will and to do? You know better than that. God isn't calling you to something easy. He is calling you to something great. Now, the English Standard Version has helpfully chosen the word training in its translation. Many translations have the word teach. Teach is fine. The grace of God does teach us, instruct us to renounce ungodliness. That is true. But the Greek word here means something much closer to training us. As my friend Lig Duncan puts it, where grace reigns, grace trains. Now, if you're training for something important, it's probably going to involve a lot of work and sweat and effort. I think back to my days in the Marine Corps. Very popular t-shirt when I was in the Marine Corps went like this. The more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. And we took that with deadly seriousness. We trained really, really hard for what we were doing. We, We put in all kinds of sacrifices in an effort to be the very best we possibly could. Because anything else would put at risk the lives of our fellow Marines. The more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. This is the type of serious training that the Apostle Paul is talking about. It is not surprising that the Apostle frequently talks about the Christian life in terms of running the race or fighting the good fight. And he was not just a man of words. The Apostle Paul took saying no seriously in his own life. Think about the Apostle's charge to the Corinthians. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body 
and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, beloved, we should quickly add, if we had to do this in our own power, we might as well give up and go home tonight. You do not have the power inside yourself to do this apart from the Holy Spirit. But see, God isn't calling us to do this in our own power. He is calling us to do this in his. He has called us to renounce ungodliness in his power. It is the Lord's empowering grace that trains us to say no. Now, of course, the goal of our Christian lives is not to just be endlessly saying no to things. Uh, The goal of saying no to some things is so that we will say yes to other things. Yes to a life that truly pleases God. And the Lord has given us extraordinary motivation for doing this very thing. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever tried to swim somewhat competitively. It, it can be exhausting. When you think about a great Olympic swimmer, as they're just stretching to get every, every bit of a second off their time, they can feel like their lungs are about to explode and their muscles are entirely going to give out. But they have a motivation for going those last few meters and pushing in strong. They're thinking about the finish line. They're thinking about finishing well. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 13. The saving grace of God has appeared with the coming of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this Jesus is coming again. He is coming again and his reward is with him. Therefore, the grace of God teaches us to wait in hope. As you can tell, that sort of waiting in hope is profoundly active. In light of the fact that our great God and Savior is coming again, we are called to keep on running, to keep on fighting, and to keep on trusting that his kingdom cannot fail. We are able to do this with great confidence because of the one to whom we belong, body and soul. The one to whom we belong, body and soul, is our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Paul is saying in verses 13 and 14? Please look there with me. Verses 13 and 14. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may have picked this up this morning if you were in adult Sunday school, but I find great joy every time I recite the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And then it gives us radically countercultural answer that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you realize how crazy that must sound to an unbeliever? That, That my only comfort in life and death is that I belong body and soul as the property of someone else. 
Well, the first thing to point out is that we, are, in fact, are someone else's property. Look at verse 14 with me. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. A people for his own possession. Beloved, you are someone else's property. Now, the reality is, is you were someone else's property even before Jesus redeemed you. Your creator has absolute claim upon your life. He created you, you belong to him. But there is a sense, as it were, that you were doubly owned by Jesus. Not only did he create you, he shed his own blood. He gave his life to purchase you, to redeem you, to buy you for himself. We had sold ourselves into an estate of sin and misery. Jesus redeemed us with his own blood. Now, you may have noticed that we've already hit the first two big divisions in the Heidelberg Catechism, guilt and grace. For right now, though, I want you to stay focused on this particular issue. I want you to stay focused on the fact that we are entirely Christ's property and ask the question, why is this good news that brings us such great comfort? You can say many things about this. I just want to say two. First, it's important to consider what sort of property you are. You know, in your home, if you have a home, um, it's very likely that you have some objects in your home that belong to you that are particularly precious to you, particularly meaningful. Uh, Perhaps you have a painting that was done by your grandmother, and it hangs in your living room in a very prominent place so that everyone who comes over to your house, they see this painting, and you get to talk about it. It is one of your treasured possessions. On the other hand, if you have a home of any kind, an apartment, a house, or whatever, it is almost certain that you also own a plunger for your toilet. Now, it does turn out that sometimes a plunger is a useful thing to have around the house. Your grandmother's painting and the plunger are both your property but they are not your property in exactly the same way. They don't mean the same thing to you. In case you're wondering where this very strange illustration is going, this is it. You are not the plunger in the kingdom of God. You are not something that just happens to be useful occasionally. You are Jesus Christ's own treasured possession. He loves you with an everlasting love. He wants people to see your life being transformed. He wants you to enjoy God and to glorify God forever. In fact, there's a wonderful Hebrew word which is commonly translated treasured possession. Uh, The various uses of this term are almost certainly what Paul has in the back of his mind as he's writing these words to Titus. You heard this this evening in our Old Covenant reading from Exodus chapter 19, I want to give you a second passage. It's actually fairly common in the the Pentateuch. Think about these words from Deuteronomy chapter 7, picking up in verse 6. For you are a chosen people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession 
out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Beloved, that's the God whose treasured possession you are because he has chosen you in Jesus Christ. So the first reason to draw great comfort from belonging body and soul to Jesus Christ is because of the type of treasured possession that you are. But second, and even more importantly, the reason that belonging body and soul to Jesus Christ brings us such great comfort is because of the type of master that he is. As I said this morning, every other master sacrifices his slaves to save his own skin. That's not Jesus. Instead of sacrificing you for his good, Jesus sacrificed himself for your good. What makes belonging to Jesus such a great comfort is Jesus. Therefore, the way to gain greater comfort and encouragement from the reality that you belong body and soul to Jesus Christ is for you to get to know Jesus better. It's that simple, but it's also that profound. The better that you know Jesus' character and heart, the more comfort and joy you will gain from knowing that he isn't only your Savior, he is also your Sovereign Lord. This means, among other things, that Christ's work in and for your life is not limited to what he did on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago. See, Jesus is ever living to make intercession for you. And because you are united to Christ through faith, the eternal Father of Jesus Christ has adopted you into his family. Right now, and also next week, and next month, and throughout all eternity, or at least until Christ comes back, because after that you won't need it, God is working all things together for your good and for your salvation. Indeed, not even a hair from your head can fall to the ground apart from your Father's loving care. So rather than trying to declare our independence from Almighty God, we have every reason to delight in our dependence upon him. Indeed, we have every reason to live for his glory. Now, we've already seen how tonight's passage proclaims both our guilt and God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Yet Paul doesn't just give us guilt and grace. He also gives us gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Look again at verse 14 with me. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What are good works? Well, if you want to study this, and it's actually a useful thing to do, 
You can scarcely do better than looking at the Westminster Confession's treatment of good works. It will greatly repay the meditation you do in that chapter. Uh, primarily, good works are works done according to the will of God. That is, we don't get to make them up, and they are done in faith out of a desire to please and glorify our King. But what we need to see tonight is actually more simple than that, and perhaps more regularly applicable into your life. Good works are simply acts of gratitude. It is because we look at what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, how he has put away our guilt, how he has redeemed us out of darkness and brought us into his own kingdom of light, that we carry out these good works with great joy, for they are simply our grateful response. Beloved, this is the inner logic of how Cretans can renounce lawlessness and debauchery and joyfully embrace godliness. Let me say that again. This is the inner logic of how Cretans can renounce lawlessness and debauchery and joyfully embrace godliness, having been rescued by Jesus Christ from their estate of sin and misery, a new life of joyful godliness is simply their grateful response. So the question we should close on this evening is simply this. How grateful are you? How grateful am I? Because this is not only true of ancient Crete, it is true of us as well. Amen.